Well, ladies and gentlemen, the faithful remain, and it's uh, my privilege to introduce our closing speaker for the uh, forum today. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Costa. Uh, she's the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of the Space Force. Dr. Costa is charged with finding and harnessing linchpin technologies that will provide guardians with the speed and capability advantages they need to win. Uh, given the rapidly evolving state of hardware and software, Dr. Costa has the expertise necessary to meet the task in getting this into the hands of the Space Force. Prior to serving as the CTIO, Dr. Costa worked extensively uh, on information access, risk management, uh, technology adoption, uh, on, and uh, she worked in the interagency in the private sector. Her experiences range from advising the Hask and Sask to working for uh, U.S. Special Operations Command. She worked at Planet Risk, Big Data Analytics, and at MITRE. So after the keynote, she is going to take questions. When that time comes, uh, please identify yourself and where you're from. And with that, Dr. Costi, you have the stage. I'm very short. Um, so first of all, thank you very much to the, the Mitchell Institute for hosting this incredible event. And I just want to take an opportunity, because I know I'm the last speaker, to have a round of applause for the folks who actually did all of the hard work in putting this together. So a wise man, Charles Galbraith, <laughs> once told me that you cannot call yourself a space professional unless you have actually spoken at the Mitchell Institute. And so, uh, and so here I am. However, I would like to perform some expectation management in that I did not grow up in the space environment. And so we just had a panel of incredible experts. And uh, my, my focus has been on operationalizing science and technology and getting it into the field for operations. So that's my background. I just wanted to kind of set expectations because space is, you know, just another domain that, that I will have worked in. Um, but I honestly believe that space is absolutely critical to ensuring the peace, the security, and the support to our joint forces. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit today about the CSO's theory of victory. I'm not sure if this was covered earlier uh, because I, I was uh, in meetings earlier, but uh, the CSO's theory of victory and then the CSO's level of efforts. And then I'm going to talk about how the office of the CTIO blends into those theories and those levels of effort. And I'll try to be quick, and then we'll, we'll get into some Q&A. So recently, General Saltzman um, talked about his theory of success, which, you know, the linchpin of that is competitive endurance. And there are three parts of competitive endurance. The first is avoid operational surprise. So what do we need for that? And we, we heard it here. Um, we need exquisite space domain awareness. But 
that's an interesting dichotomy when we we're talking about putting um, assets into space that are not exquisite any longer. And so we're trying to have this exquisite look, but we're putting non-exquisite assets into orbit. And so that's okay, but we have to understand that that's the environment in which we're working. And then we also have to have a really good understanding about the limitations of the constraints of the environment in which we're operating, which is at minimum inhospitable. The second part of the competitive endurance theory is to negate first mover advantage. So that's a really hard thing to do. We want to do that through resiliency, and we want to make sure that the first mover uh, in either competition or conflict does not necessarily have the advantage. And again, that is a hard thing to do, but I think that what you've heard today, especially from Dr. Tournier, from the panel just before me, that is exactly what we are getting after in Space Force. And we're focusing on this resiliency of a hybrid nature, right? We, we have kind of the old model of everything is exquisite, very expensive. We have the new, new model of let's just get stuff up there. And it's really kind of a combination of these models that's so important for us to sustain resiliency in the environment. And then third is avoid the unsustainable environment. And as General Saltzman said, we have to avoid a Pyrrhic victory. In other words, if we have physical destruction in space, that makes it even more inhospitable. And we want to avoid that at all costs. So what I really like about this theory that he presented is he, he presented it as a theory. He did not present it as laws. In other words, the whole idea behind presenting this theory of victory is, is to instill debate, discussion, deliberation about what are we missing out of this theory? And I, I think these are the you were the people, right, that we expect to ha be having these discussions along with our guardians, both military and civilian, to really help us understand what's missing out of that theory for victory and what we need to do to go forward. Because I will, for as many great ideas as we have as a service, we are new. We are limited somewhat in capacity, right? When I go to some universities and visit, I think they're very surprised when I say, well, your freshman class coming in is larger than our entire Space Force, both um, uh, civilian and military. And that catches them by surprise. So right now we're very um, capacity limited, but not idea limited. So where I want to go with this is that we have to choose wisely in terms of what we're going to prioritize to get out into the field. There are many things that we could do, but we have to determine what's off the plate and what's on the plate in the next few years and get to it. Will there be longer-term investments? And we just heard about um, 
uh, alternative power capabilities, absolutely, and, and we are all over that. But again, I can't emphasize it enough that I am very hyper-focused on operationalizing science and technology for operations' sake. So with that, um, the CTIO, a CTIO office is actually organized around this theory of victory. The Science, Technology, and Research uh, Directorate that we have conducts space futures. And we conduct space futures. It's a, uh, different cohorts every quarter that we convene. And we focus on what will the future of space look like and what does the future of space need to look like over time. Because if we were to sit and be watching over a conference table 50 years ago, the things that we experience every day as normal in space would have been identified as impossible or at minimum improbable 50 years ago. We do not want to be in that same boat going forward. We want to be very active in shaping the future that we want to see. So I'm going to get into that when we get to partnerships. Um, but under negating first mover advantage through resiliency, the CTIO has two directorates that are focused on digital innovation and modern infrastructure. And I will definitely be talking about the infrastructure part because we have um, inherited some infrastructure that is quite old, and the last thing that most folks want to take on is infrastructure because it's, you know, it's kind of not the non-exciting part of uh, any innovation strategy, but it's absolutely critical for us to be able to adopt a lot of the capabilities and technologies that many of you are representing in this room today. And then third, under extending deterrence, the CTIO has the S9. And that is the analytic and modeling uh, support for the entire service in terms of, and we, we have them focused on deterrence and the space force of the future. So that's how the CTIO office organization is linked to the theory of victory. So now let me talk about the levels of effort. The levels of effort are not separate and apart from the theory of victory, right? They're actually staples of the theory of victory. And some people see these as completely different, um, you know, activities, but they are not. The first level of effort that uh, was identified by General Saltzman was fielding combat credible forces. And General Shava talked about this earlier. It is absolutely necessary for us to be able to train, equip, and present forces that are combat credible and that can speak a joint language. Because let me tell you, having spent a lot of my time at combatant commands, if you are not speaking the joint language, you are discounted out of the, the plans process, right? You are discounted out of the options available to the commander. 
So you have to speak a joint language. And we don't need to be teaching Marines orbital mechanics. We need to be teaching our folks how to talk about space effects in a joint environment. And so um, that's what I think about when I think about fielding combat-ready forces. The second LOE is amplifying the guardian spirit, and that is really about our culture. Everything that is positive about the Space Force and the guardians that are in the Space Force that make it up, and supporting them. The key to our service's success are its people. And I think anyone who has been around Space Force knows that there has been an incredible effort to make sure that we are reaching out to our entire society for the best and the brightest. And I will tell you where perhaps some services are having very difficult times with recruiting numbers, we do not have that uh, problem in Space Force. In fact, I would say we, we have an embarrassing dearth of um, incredible talent, and, and yet there are only so many that we can take. And so I encourage people, look, if you're, if you're not wearing a uniform, that's okay. If you're wearing civilian um, attire, you're still a guardian. And that's really an important, again, part of our culture. And then third is partnering to win. And Space Force was inherently built um, by Congress so that we must partner. We don't have um, a lot of the key services that um, other standalone services have. We must partner. And we rely heavily on the FF-RDCs, academia, industry, the Mitchell Institute, um, and the like to ensure that we are able to take advantage of talent wherever talent resides, which is, which is again, very um, critical. Part of those partnerships, too, though, is allied nations. And a number of our allies are kind of fledgling in the space environment. We are working with our allies to help them develop space programs and that includes education as well, right? So there's no place you go to a you know, school to get a degree in space sciences. But we're working through our university consortium program to see how we can help train our uh, allied partners so that as they start to develop and stand up their space programs, that they're doing it in that professional way with the rules of law that, that we are encouraging and that we are the partner of choice for these nations. So a lot of people think of the CTIO office as really being um, focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is digital transformation. Um, my life would be a whole lot easier if that was the only thing that we were focused on. Uh, but that is not the case. And so I want to read you our mission statement. The mission of the CTIO is to provide decision superiority and advantage through asymmetric effects, to craft a lethal warfighting force 
while building partnerships and taking care of our number one resource, our people. So along those lines, let me talk about what we are doing project-wise, because for those of you who are in industry and are very interested in how you might be able to tie in to some of our active projects, I think this is where um, you might be particularly interested. So under uh, LOE1, right, which is Fielding Combat Ready Forces, I want to talk about ION, which is our new mission network that we're standing up, Enhanced UDL, the Unified Data Library, and Spaceverse. So with that, we're delivering digital services to combat-ready forces, and this new mission network that I'm talking about starts out at the SAP level. Is it limited to the SAP level? No, it is not. It is a mission network that has to be operational, really at every classification level. But again, I want to emphasize this is not enterprise IT. This is a mission network and very different from enterprise IT. The sorts of things that um, industry is sending to us, right, cannot operate on the networks that we have today. We just had a great discussion, a fulsome discussion about commercial data. Our networks cannot support the amount and the AI processing required to determine what data is important to a guardian because not all data has to be presented to an individual for decision support. It is the important data that needs to be um, identified to them. So ION will be a dynamic, cloud-based, software-defined mission network that integrates the Space Force across all of its verticals. What do I mean by that? It's not just the physical verticals, but the functional verticals. We have three field commands, and those are the equivalency of MAGCOMs, right, in the Air Force. And then we have a number of direct reporting units. When we were standing up those field comms and those DRUs, the focus was on we need to get them stood up, right? And so the, we created these verticals. But now we need to integrate across those um, enterprise, not only organizations, but the functions that they represent. And so we had SSC, right? We need to help them connect in a high bandwidth, high I.O., low latency way to, for example, the Space Warfighting Analysis Center, right, SWAC. We need to be able to link them up to Starcom so that they can provide model-based systems engineering models to Starcom so that training materials can be developed for guardians and so that they can then take that training material and have guardians developing TTPs and doctrines off of it. And then that gets um, translated to Spock and operations. So we're not only doing the, the vertical physical piece, but, but also the functional integration piece with ION. ION is moving fast 
We stood up a um, OPT, I believe, last November, and um, we have already done the field work and um, engineering to determine um, what we need, and an RFP will be going out, I believe, in this month. Um, so that's, uh, uh, you know, a great endeavor, and I am driving the team very hard and very fast to focus on agnostic data transport. Because again, going back to what Dr. Turnier um, talked about, we are not interested in, interested in, and it is not good for Space Force or industry to have vendor lock. And so we are looking at um, a, a highly resilient agnostic data transport via ION. The second effort I want to talk about is enhanced UDL. So the Unified Data Library is a great initi initiative, and actually this does fall under um, General Shava's portfolio. It's a great initiative. Many industry and academic partners use it. We use it within the Space Force. However, when we built it, it was never designed to take on the at-scale data needed and, and being provided by commercial entities. And so we uh, have built a series of requirements for enhanced UDL, and that RFP um, I believe is coming out of General Shava's shop um, early in 24. So the focus of that particular RFP will be on allowing us to have discoverability, accessibility, and at-scale processing and movement of data. So again, I can't emphasize enough. I, I could implement AI today. I, I can tell you I couldn't even run an MPEG-4 on my desktop that, that someone sent me last week. So exactly how are we going to be running, you know, um, AI and deep learning algorithms without enabling the entire force to be able to do this instead of just small enclaves being able to do it. And then finally, space first. So, Space Force is the smallest service with the largest area of responsibility. And I just talked about that whole dichotomy, right, about more assets going up, but we need more exquisite space domain awareness. So how are we going to get to that? Right now, we put a huge cognitive load on our guardians. They sit there for 12-hour shifts, and they watch, you know, 24 open screens and text messages, text messages coming up. And all of the integration of that information is happening in wetware. It's happening in their brain. And imagine the exhaustion of walking out of that place after 12 hours. We have got to do this a different way. And one of those ways is meeting our guardians where they come to us from. Our, our guardians have been training for their jobs for their entire lifetime because they have been gamers. And we need to be implementing, and it's not just us saying this. I mean, we're actually looking at doing a collaborative um, uh, project with NASA on this because we're um, training 
on you know, the, the next generation of astronauts? And how do we immersively engage them in their environments instead of thinking about kind of the old ways of just presenting flat data and not being able to help them understand what they should emphasize and understand um, in decision making? So we are very much focused on that. But let me say this. We could spend billions of dollars on the concept of space first, and it wouldn't run. None of it would run because, again, we, we don't have the infrastructure to run it on, and that's why ION is so important. I like to think of these three projects, ION, Enhanced UDL, and Space First, as really like, like a house. You're building a house. And ION is the foundation and all the plumbing that has to be done, and that's kind of the dirty work, and no one really wants to get involved in that, right? Um, when we get to, um, you know, now we're putting up walls, um, now we get into the, you know, UDL, enhanced UDL, because now we're figuring out the structure and the wiring of the house, right? And where's that data need to be delivered to? And then finally, um, if we think about space first, it's really kind of the appliances and, you know, and, and the layout of the rooms because that's what's going to allow individuals to really understand their environment and the environment they're, they're going to have to navigate through. So that's how I like to, to kind of uh, talk about these three projects. Finally, um, in LOE2, I'll talk about um, digital university and supercoders. So LOE2 is about the guardian spirit, advancing the guardian spirit. Digital University is providing over 30,000 classes now, um, almost double the number of uh, classes than guardians that we have, but that's a good thing. And again, some folks think, oh, it's, it's just in kind of the, you know, um, digital engineering part of what we're doing. No, it, it's optics, it's physics, it's... Um, baselining space language, right? So that when you when you talk to others, um, you're speaking from a common playing field. So DU is the long-term vision of where we will be meeting our guardians, where they come to us from. This is all online learning. Um, they can get professional certifications, and we can. Um, uh, help them move a lot of those classes into professional degree-seeking programs as well. So DU is, is important to get people uh, digitally fluent, and our workforce needs to be digitally fluent. Someone um, asked me if that is what I really meant. Does everyone in Space Force need to be digitally fluent? Absolutely. We have roughly 16,000 people. Every single one of them has to be cross-trained, and they have to be able to, when they move from operations and they go to acquisition, they need to know what they're buying. 
right? When they move from acquisitions and they move to training, they need to understand completely how they're going to maximize those training platforms to get the most out of a guardian's understanding and comprehension. So um, DU is absolutely critical as well as the software development immersive or what produces supercoders, right? And we have 106 supercoders today. And this is what I say about supercoders. A couple weeks ago, I got an email. Hey, I heard about supercoders. How do I get me some of that? You cannot build supercoders overnight, right? You have to sign a billet, and there's a little bit of pain involved. You have to send an individual to um, a highly immersive class, right, away, away from your environment, where they're focused on learning different computer languages, data science, um, user interfaces, and then they go to a three-month internship. Then when they come back to you, they have a Z prefix. And when it's time for them to um, move on, we track those Z prefixes so that their next potential commander knows how, that they, how they can use them. Now, this is what I'll say about supercoders. If it was only about coding, well, we could hire coders all day long. I mean, many of you provide coders to the government. The difference is, is that these coders are certified on the systems that they are working on. They are space professionals, unlike me, and they are working in their team to identify pain points to their deltas. So they are able to um, put a solution into place within hours or days, as opposed to going through the, the big R requirements process. Think of this more as the little r piece. And an example of that was a, a recent Delta um, supercoder got a bunch of supercoders together and said, hey, we have a problem. We have some ISR data on a classified system that we, every time we try to look at this stuff, it's corrupted, it's got all kinds of problems with it. Let's figure out, you know, how we can make this more usable to the Delta. So they got together, they figured out what data streams they needed to capture. They captured them, they normalized the data, they created a new data set altogether, and now they are able to shave off um, you know, weeks of time going through massive amounts of data, and it's directly feeding into um, operations. So again, 106 super coders trained and in place. We continue to fight for an increase in the pipeline because, again, you don't create these people overnight. And we have to think about ways that we are going to um, ensure that uh, we have enough of these um, assets, especially in terms of surge capacity. Cannot emphasize that enough. We need to ensure that, yeah, okay, if 100 is right, Maybe you need 300 in order to have surge capacity if something truly happens. And then LOE3, how partnerships um, uh, can help. 
So partnering to win. We have a number of efforts in partnering, and so, so much that I can't really go into it. We have Hackistat. We have um, immersion challenges. We have SpaceWorks, AFWorks. We have our um, university consortium research opportunities that are going on right now. We have a hypersonics challenge uh, going on now. We're getting ready to start a power challenge. But with that, let me just focus on... Um, let me just focus on the fact that in partnerships, I want to go back to what I said earlier, we don't need perfect. And I think you've heard this message today. We don't need perfect. The 60 or 70% solution is okay, except in nuclear command and control and communications. Let's not take that. Let's not take a 60% solution there. But... But the vision of the university consortium is not just to throw money out and to create more 6-1 and 6-2. Because let me tell you, when I compare the money that we have with the money that others have um, to fund 6-1 and 6-2, um, it's very small. And I would rather spend that money on taking what others have funded in 6-1 and 6-2 and figure out how we can operationalize it and get it into the field as soon as possible. And again, we have to have this kind of near-term, mid-term, and, and long-term view, but I am a, a near- and mid-term uh, view sort of person and want to get things out into the field. And so um, we have five science and technology institutes that were standing up. The first one, the RFP, went out on March 27th. And let me, let me tell you why industry should be really caring about this. Um, because it's not just about academia. Our SSTIs require that there be more than one university and require that industry be involved. Why? because we would rather buy something than to have to take something at the 6-2 level, 6-3 level, hand it off to maybe AFRL or DARPA, then wait another few years, et cetera. We want industry to be involved in the research so that they could take IP, put it into products, and we can buy it. So the five SSTIs are Beyond Geostationary Orbit, XGO, Operations and Space Domain Awareness. I think, I think you probably saw that one coming. Two is In Space Operations. Three is Advanced Space Power and Propulsion. So someone asked me earlier, did, you know, do we care about? Absolutely. And, and hybrid propulsion, um, particularly. Four, advanced remote sensing technologies and operational changes and concepts. And then cyber mission assurance and data trust for space-based military missions. Let me give you an example of something I saw earlier um, uh, this month. Well, that's pretty hard to say, but it was literally last week. And that is where a university had taken AI in deep learning to look at um, imagery, dif different phenomenology imagery, put it all together, and then look for particular um, 
um, artifacts and doing feature extraction, automated feature extraction, right, across the globe to picture certain um, uh, attributes, right, water, oil, et cetera. So imagine being able to use deep learning, feature extraction, automated feature extraction in space, right? Again, lots of you know, platforms, but we need to be able to understand where they are and where they're moving, especially if they're going to be able to be moving more often, especially if we enable on-orbit servicing, right, and um, additive manufacturing. We need to be able to have that understanding. So it's a great example of where we can take things that have been um, developed for others and then apply them in space. So with that, um, you know, I know that uh, I stated at the beginning the Space Force was designed so that we have to partner. We absolutely do. We have um, evolving architectures. I think you heard a lot about that today. I'm a huge fan of what SDA is doing, what SSC is doing. Um, really amazing work by many, many people. And, and we're looking to have these capabilities um, put into operations with agility, with resiliency, and in operationally relevant timelines. I can't emphasize that enough. With industry, let me just uh, emphasize that uh, Space Force uh, will continue to partner, but even look for closer ties to industry so that we are able to exploit what we have, to buy what we can, and only build what we have to. And with that, thank you for your time, and thank you to the Mitchell Institute. And if there are any questions, please raise your hand. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Teresa Hitchens with Breaking Defense. Thank you for that speech. It was really interesting. Um, General Miller from Space Command talked about his concerns about um, lack of capability to keep custody of satellites on orbit, particularly those that are moving and that this is a, a need that the command has. And it sounds to me like that's a need you're trying to fill with the enhanced data library, unified data library. Is that correct? And if so, can you elaborate on how the enhancements will help that problem? No, absolutely. And yes, EU, enhanced UDL will be able to help with that particular challenge, but it is only a component of the technologies that will be needed, right? So if you're talking about managing custody, well, okay, we might want, we might need something like blockchain, or we not, might need other sorts of capabilities that allow us to um, understand movement in space and ensure that an asset is exactly the asset that we have been tracking. And, um, uh, be able to understand movement around that asset. So absolutely, an, an enhanced UDL will also be able to help in terms of being able to understand more about the environment because it will be bringing in that vital 
commercial data at speed and, and at scale. And that's another way. Thank you. Anyone else? Now I know what Derek meant by the lights right in your eyes, so you can't see. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm John Kohut from Galt Aerospace. The uh, Earth-Moon Lagrange points open some, offer some particularly unique capabilities of being able to enter essentially any orbit um, at very low energy states. Is there any thought or interest in, in establishing a base at a Lagrange point? And conversely, it, it, what would be our reaction if China decided to do that. So now you're asking me something that a space scientist would only know. But, um, <laughs> however, what I will say is that um, we are working and partnering with NASA on some initiatives in terms of alternative orbits, um, uh, alternative communications, et cetera. And I, I would refer you probably to my science tech and research branch that would be able to answer your question uh, at much more detail than I would be able to. Yes? Uh, good afternoon. Patrick Binning, uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Uh, enjoy hearing the talk about ION and where you're going with that. Low latency, high bandwidth, very much necessary. Uh, but most government networks can only run Microsoft products. Uh, what do you see ION given the guardians and high-performance computing and their ability to actually do engineering and high-performance analytics? Is ION where that's going, or is there something else that the Space Force is thinking about? That Thank is you. where ION is going. Um, Although, let me tell you, I would be happy to be able to run Microsoft products. <laughs> but um, uh, absolutely, high-performance computing, having access to that. Not everyone has to have that from their desktop. So uh, being able, though, to use ION to access resources, again, where they reside, be able to run algorithms at that localized level and then bring back the results is absolutely critical. Um, you know, I've emphasized this point of um, we collect a lot of data in space, right? We have to create, quote, an ion in space as well because when we think about um, the amount of data needing to traverse space, that really almost begs the question of what, where are our data centers in space, right? Where is our agnostic transport? Where are our space um, data layer transport? So it's absolutely critical for us to um, branch out from ION. We're starting at that kind of classified um, networking WAN-based level, but it will expand from there. Now, whether it is all under that, that title of ION or not, I don't care, really. Um, I'm really about providing access to the individuals who need it. Not every guardian needs to have high-performance computing, 
But what we do need is we need to be able to access that high-performing com performance computing, and then we need to be able to feed that at speed to individuals so that they're able to comprehend the results of that analysis. And, and that is exactly what we're focused on in, in ION and in enhanced UDL and the um, construct of Space First. So it's really all three of them put together. When we, th when we think about networking, we really have to think about, um, you know, there are many layers of networking, right? And so we have strategic, operational, and tactical levels of networking. We have different requirements for each one of those. I was really only talking about the strategic levels of uh, networking with ION. I was not talking about the operational and the tactical pieces, where, again, the focus is really on software-defined networks and re really software-defined everything. Uh, if we're going to be able to uh, communicate space effects at mission command levels, then we ultimately need new types of capabilities to be able to communicate to the joint forces who um, might be in, um, uh, you know, A2AD environments. And so ION is not that, uh, but it needs to feed that. Any other questions? For one more. If not, I've got one. Okay. I'm just curious, Dr. Costa, you, you said recently it would take about seven years to fully digitize Space Force, make it a digitized service. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, uh, is the money in the budget to do that? Uh, is there more needed? Where do you see that at right now in terms of resources? It's a great question, and it really depends on how much of the um, – enterprise IT, and I talked about enterprise IT, that we have to um, take an upgrade versus just greenfield, right? And at some point, yes, greenfielding is a very painful thing, but I dare say that um, if any industry, um, CIO, CTIO, was looking at the infrastructure that we currently have, it would make monetary sense, return on investment sense, to Greenfield. And again, that's a challenging thing, right? DOD is not very good at taking things off the list. We're really good at adding things to the list. The list gets very, very long, and, um, uh, and no one is willing to rack and stack at one to N. So I fundamentally believe that we will get ahead much quicker if we don't try to uh, dig ourselves out of tech debt, but we just leap over that and move to software-defined everything and modern systems that, you know, keep evolving over time. And again, I go back to Dr. Tournier and, it's exactly what he's doing. It's really um, uh, a great initiative, and I, I think that's the same thing that we need to do in terms of uh, di digital infrastructure. All right. Well, thank you so much. I uh, very much appreciate it.
And uh, hopefully now, Charles, I can say that I am a space professional. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.